0: Welcome to another episode of The Weekend University's podcast. This episode is sponsored by our Optimal Wellbeing online conference taking place on Sunday, the 28th of February, 2021. In this lecture series, we'll be exploring the new science of sleeping, breathing, and walking, and how you can optimize these areas for greater well-being in day-to-day life. You can learn more about the event at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash events, And you can get a discount on your ticket if you use the promo code podcast when registering in this episode i had the pleasure of speaking to dr john vervaki john is assistant professor in psychology at the university of toronto and the author and presenter of the youtube series awakening from the meaning crisis the depth and breadth of john's knowledge are extensive which is reflected in the wide range of subjects he teaches his courses include cognitive science buddhism psychology and mental health cognitive development, the psychology of wisdom, and many others. Over the past few years, he has focused on taking his knowledge outside of academia and making it more accessible to the wider world, mainly via his hit YouTube series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which explores the historical causes of the Meaning Crisis and offers some solutions too. John believes strongly in the power of dialogue to transform both individuals and culture, and spends a lot of his time engaging in meaningful conversations with other key thinkers in the field including people like Jordan Peterson, E. McGilchrist, Tim Freck, and many others. He is the author of the book, Zombies in Western Culture, a 21st Century Crisis, which integrates psychology and cognitive science to address the meaning crisis in Western society. You can learn more about John's work on his website, www.johnvervecki.com, and follow him on Twitter at vervecki_john. underscore john. In this interview, I asked John about some of the key insights from his YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And this this covers things like the causes of our kind of sense of lack of meaning in life, um, different ways we can overcome self-deception, ways to reduce internal conflict, and ways to sort of overcome what John calls existential inertia. So this is all around um how we can find ways to sort of make transformational leaps in life and become the things or be, or do the things that we actually want to do but we're not sure about and we've kind of been procrastinating on so it was absolutely fascinating to speak to John today and I hope you get as much as much from this conversation as I have from recording it Right, John. Welcome to the show. Um, for anybody that isn't aware of you and the work that you do, could you tell us a bit about your background and what got you so interested in studying the the meaning crisis? Um.
1: <clears throat> so, um, uh, I guess first of all, sort of my professional background. I'm a an associate professor at the University of Toronto. I teach and do research in cognitive psychology, where I do a lot of work on wisdom, rationality, and uh, intelligence and, and mindfulness. And I also teach within the cognitive science program. I'm the director of the cognitive science program, where I do a lot of work on um, the nature of intelligence, but more from a neuroscientific uh, point of view, um, and this process of meaning-making that I call relevance realization. Uh, and then I also teach in an overload uh, program, the Buddhism and cognitive, uh, the Buddhism psychology mental health program, where I teach a course on uh, Buddhism and cognitive science. I do work on mindfulness, transformative experience and enlightenment. So uh, the three overlapping areas, they, they, they may sound very discordant, but they actually are really uh, coherent and they mutually afford and support each other. Um, and so I went, I don't know how much of my personal biography you want, but basically, um, like, like many other people, I went through something uh, of a personal meaning crisis uh, that had to do with leaving the religion I was brought up in and then searching around. Um, I encountered uh, the figure of Socrates, That and this has started a lifelong relationship for me um, in which the cultivation of wisdom came to the fore. Uh, and this was initially very intuitive and, and inchoate for me, but this was the primary thing that was needed to respond to my personal meaning crisis. And then As I did more and more work on that, I also took up a whole ecology of practices, meditation, contemplation, uh, Tai Chi Chuan, uh, uh, Qigong, uh, Yi Chuan, just a whole bunch of them. Um, And then eventually some uh, related Neoplatonic practices like Lexio Divina and things like that. And so I was doing all of that and I started to bring, Connections between my personal response to the meaning crisis and the and the sort of cutting edge cognitive science that I was seeing, and this new model of cognitive science was really awakening uh, uh, to aspects of the mind and the mind's relationship to the body, and the mind and body's relationship to other people and to the world that had been largely very neglected until very recently within cognitive science. So the cognitive science was emerging, and it was starting to provide me with all this language and discourse for reflecting upon and articulating what the personal transformation I was going through and I started to share this in my courses uh, my both my psychology courses and my cog sci courses and the students really started to respond very deeply and so I started to suspect that there was more going on than just my personal right we always over from ourselves so I was worried about that but I was getting more so the more I, I like I very I think I was like the first person to teach about mindfulness that University of Toronto. But the more I sort of unpacked this uh, stuff that was previously considered sort of granola and woo-woo and, and show how it could be approached in a really rigorous manner, both theoretically and empirically, the more the students were eating it up. And then my my colleague and friend Evan Thompson was at U of T at the time, and they asked him to teach this course, Buddhism and Cognitive Science. And he said, I can't do it, but John would be perfect for it. So I started teaching it. And I even and in that course, I even more started uh, to open this up, and as I, st- as I saw the, the increasing response from the students, um, uh, that course quickly became, in some sense, my summative course, my most favorite course, and it was, became extremely uh, popular, um, and so I got more and more interested in the meaning crisis, not just as I had found it from the inside personally, and I started, I started doing a lot of the history, um, the influence of Mark Taylor and Charles Taylor and a whole bunch of other people, and I'd always been an amateur historian. And so I just opened that up and I poured more on that. So I did that for like a decade, um, really developing that. And one of my students, uh, I, I'd sort of filmed one version of it, but it was really crappy and horrible. And the sound, like just so I had it online for my students, because if, if they missed the lecture. And I had a student who, who, like, he was done the course and everything. And he came up to me and he said, You know, I'm a professional videographer. My father's a professional editor. Let's turn this into, let's turn, take this and do a really good job. Um, and that's so how the how Awakening the Meeting Crisis came about. I took all the work from Buddhism and Cognitive Science. Of course, I teach on the psychology of wisdom. Of course, I taught on the psychology of mindfulness. Of course, I taught on the psychology of insight um, and, about, and all this other work and I put it all together and made the argument for Awakening from the Meeting Crisis. So, and then since then, I have, I mean, I've made other smaller series more to in-house, I've, uh, I've done a series called Untangling the World Not with Greg Enricus, in which we really try to wrestle with, from a cognitive science point of view, what is consciousness? What kind of thing is it? How does it emerge? How does it work? Um, and I'm going to be doing another one with Greg and uh, my good friend and co-author, Christopher Mattria Master Pietro on the Nature of the Self. Um, that's coming out shortly. Um, and then I've been doing Voices with Viveki because I've been very interested in trying to tap into the collective intelligence of, right, of distributed cognition, not individual cognition, but the cognition that we do in groups, the way the internet networks computers together, culture networks people together, and trying to tap into that. And so I've been doing participant observation, entering into these deep dialogues that often transform into what I call dialogos, where the two of us are coming to a place together that we couldn't come to individually, um, almost sort of a shared flow state that's directed towards um, communing in the communication, not just stating ideas and exemplifying that and and how that can be something that people need, that sense of connectedness, deep opening connectedness as something that they need in order to respond to the meeting crisis. So, um, I'm doing that now. It's a series called Voices with Revaki. I've got an anthology that Chris and I have put together for many people who are setting up all these different ecologies and practices around this authentic dialogue. They're, they're springing up all over the place and we, we got them together and we put a, an anthology together. And so that's sort of what I'm working on right now. And that, that's sort of me in a nutshell, I hope. I hope that was, I hope that was helpful.
0: That's fantastic. It sounds like you're very busy. I know. I'd be curious to ask, John, you know, what would you say are the symptoms or the evidence that we are currently experiencing a meaning crisis in our culture? And I know you've read a book, I can't remember the exact title, but the metaphor you use is zombies. Now, why did you choose that particular metaphor?
1: That's excellent. So, yeah, it's zombies in Western culture, a 21st century crisis. I wrote that with Christopher Massapietro Pietro and Philip Nisivic. So, the let, I'll come back to the zombies because it's, a, it's another symptom. It's a, it's a sort of a mythopoetic symptom. Um, and cultures often express distress by generating mythological imagery. Um, and there's a set of mythemes myth that are really powerful right now. But before we get to that, let's think, because Chris and I have published in uh, a journal called The Side View, um, an overview of what we call the symptomology of the meeting crisis and sort of the, the set of things you can see happening. And, th- and there's a whole bunch of them. Um, one is just the, I mean, and, and and sort of the response to the meaning crisis itself is evidence of this, right? The, the pervasive sense of sort of nihilism and cynicism uh, that's pervasive in the culture. And we have to understand that that sense of meaninglessness is, uh, there was a, it's really quite profound. There was a survey recently, I think it was 2017 in the UK and 89% of the people responded and said their lives were meaningless. Um, the older people did a bit better. Uh, they were only something like, I can't remember if this is exactly right, it's like 60% um, were meaningless. And, and that's because some of them have the sense of meaninglessness ameliorated by religion. Um, I'm not proposing religion, but there's, a, there's an important thing to take note of there. Religion networks people together, like I was talking about earlier, and gets that sort of communal flow and connectedness. Uh, we can come back to that later. Uh, but so... That sense of meaninglessness can directly lead to suicide, e- even without triggering clinical depression. Of course, it overlaps with clinical depression and anxiety disorders, which are on the rise now in a very significant way, especially among younger people. That's of course, um, is exacerbated by another thing that's, you know, really um, a, both a symptom and an accelerant of the meaning crisis, which is people's um, almost addictive behavior to social media uh, and they keep craving more and more um, and it's not satisfying them in a healthy manner so they either fall into despair or they fall into craziness Uh, you know the 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 rise of what Jules Evans calls conspirituality um, the attempt to find an underlying they're so hungry for an underlying narrative that makes their lives meaningful that's a clear symptom on the other hand like I said people give up and and you find this pervasive and growing at a time of such expansive social media. And this is before COVID, by the way. Uh, it's accelerated by COVID, but this is the loneliness epidemic. People overwhelmingly seem to be much more lonely uh, than they used to be, disconnected. You have the disenfranchisement. People are leaving established religions and organized religions in ever-increasing numbers. The nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, right, is was of the fastest growing, um, a demographic group but if you look at them they're not sort of Sam Harris atheists most of them are spiritual but not religious which is they hunger for uh, and this term is very vague and almost useless they hunger for spirituality uh, but they're really distrustful of both political ideologies and organized religions and so they do this autodidactic fragmented thing uh, you see the rise of a lot of well it's, it's 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 very much like religious behavior uh around mythological figures um and so on one side you've got right we we had the whole big thing i mean it's waning because it was just an expression it wasn't a, a, a solution but the whole zombie metaphor right the myth theme and people really getting so invested in it and you know the zombie really represents the meaning crisis uh the, right the, the uh, they, 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 they can't make meaning they can't even speak they often hunger for the meaning make an organ or they want to eat brains what a bizarre thing right uh, they move around in a horde but there's no community or connection they're perpetually decadent and decaying uh, they eat but they're never satisfied right they drift aimlessly there's no grand purpose they're not even metaphysically evil they're just us I mean and that was something that was hammered home in uh, The Walking Dead. We are The Walking Dead. The, the heroes say that m- multiple times in the, in the series. It's like, yes, we are, right? And we shuffle down the streets, right? And like all that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and the zombie also represents the perversion of the Christian mythos. Uh, the zombie is resurrected, but not to the abundant life, but to the decadent life, right? Um, and the zombie is associated with an apocalypse, the apocalypse was supposed to be the renewal of the world, but that's perverted into the just ongoing, pervasive, unending, right? There like, isn't even a story there. It just drifts. So that's one side, but you see, I don't know if this is positive or not, but not as, uh, but not as, I don't know, negative, I guess. Um, you know, the, just the titanic fascination with superheroes uh, and the mythos of people who are empowered They have special powers and special connections to reality, such that they can do the morally good thing and build meaningful projects. And so people are just hungry for that. And then you see more positive. Uh, And by the way, that's religious. And if you don't think that's religious, go to Comic-Con sometime. If you don't think that's religious, go to Comic-Con sometime. I mean, you know, the churches would love it if they could get that kind of Oh, I'm, I'm not religious. What, what are you doing? Well, I'm dressing up as Thor and I'm going to go to this place where other people are dressed up and we're going to walk around and we're going to buy objects and do things together and perform rituals and celebrate the... Yeah, that's religion, right? And that often pisses people off when I say that. But you also get more positive things. You have the mindfulness revolution that's been going on. You have the revival of ancient practices for cultivating wisdom, like Stoicism. You have a massive increase in the academic interest on mindfulness, transformative experiences, psychedelic experiences, mystical experiences, uh, wisdom, meaning in life, this is just burgeoning. Um, and so you see, all of the what what explains all of these phenomena, right? Well, we think what explains it is there's something like what we're, all what makes sense of all of those together collectively is the cri- the culture. People are starving for meaning. Now, when we say meaning, we're using a metaphor. Sentences or utterances have meaning. We're we're using it as a metaphor for, well, sentences make sense and they connect us and the world together in an effective manner. And what people are saying with that metaphor is they want their lives and their their states of awareness to to make sense in such a way that they feel deeply connected to themselves, to each other in the world. And for, for a lot of people, that's not gelling as well as it should and we know that meaning in life is a real need like if you don't have meaning in life it impacts you all your mental and physical health in pretty uh, pretty important ways so that's sort of all of the evidence for the meaning crisis in a nutshell i hope <laughs> read, the, read the article. If any, I mean, and people should. If people are critical and want to disagree, read the article uh, because we go into it obviously in more detail with more argumentation.
0: Cool. We'll link to the. What's the name of the article? We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, f- uh I'll send you the link. I'm trying to remember what it is. Uh, what, what do we call? I think
1: it's called the Symptomology of the Meaning Crisis. It's in okay. a journal called The Side View. If you want, I'll send you a bunch
0: bunch of links to all these things. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be cool. Um. So in your series, I think, I'm not sure the exact amount, there's, is there 50 lectures, 50 plus lectures? Yeah,
1: there's 50 lectures and it's divided evenly. The first 25 lectures, while having a lot of cognitive science in them, are basically the historical argument. How did we get here historically? And then the second right half of the, uh, the lecture series is the cognitive science. Well, what is this meaning making? And why are people so hungry for meaning and wisdom? What's it do? How does it work, et cetera?
0: That's what I wanted to ask you about, you know, um, obviously there's 25 lectures on the historical context around this, um, but if maybe you could provide like a bit of an introduction and to say, what would you think are the primary historical causes at the root of the current meaning crisis that we're experiencing, you know, like, um, what would you say it's rooted in?
1: Um, so so very broadly, sort of, sort of two, two main things. Uh, this is, yeah, I mean, forgive me, and, and I know you'll take it, take it charitably. I have to try and summarize uh, a 25-hour argument into maybe um, <laughs> five minutes. Um, so um, so one thing to note is that our sense of wisdom, it has a legacy. It's a heritage, It's uh, and that heritage has been developed and been enculturated, sewn saw, into the fabric of our culture. Um and so there's a period. Some people call, call it the axial revolution. Some people call it the axial age. Some people call it the axial state stage. And I'm not going to get into that historical controversy. But basically, there was the Bronze Age, which is you know ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, lasts a long time, great huge empires. And then there's the greatest collapse in civilization that's ever occurred, the Bronze Age collapse. And there's also a lot of controversy around. What was happening there? Or why did it happen? But the point is, uh, I, I use an analogy to try and help people. So the, the Bronze Age is filled with these dinosaur empires and these dinosaur cultures. And then the Bronze Age collapses like the asteroid hitting the earth 65 million years ago. And the mammals that had existed for 130 million years and, and not, without changing much, they 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 then go through this massive process of differentiation of speciation. And so the Bronze Age collapses like the asteroid hitting, and then all these little kingdoms and new cultures spring up. Mm-hmm. And they event they invent a bunch of psychotechnologies. Psychotechnology is the tool designed to sort of fit the mind and enhance it. So they invent alphabetic literacy, and then the Greeks do things like add vowels and standardize the reading. Uh, They invent coinage, which teaches people numeracy and to use abstract symbol system. The thing is these these psychotechnologies are created for very sort of prosaic reasons. Uh, and there's other things going on. So I'm so, just trying to be very fast.
0: Sorry, John, on. one of the things I found really interesting was um, the origin of phrases such as like, how are you? Like when we walk past on the street and we say like, you know, how are you? Like why we do that? And yeah, I find that absolutely fascinating. So maybe could you tell us a bit more about that. Uh,
1: uh, w- w- which do you mean? Sorry. I, I'm, I'm, uh, what, what, what connection are you asking?
0: So, you know, you're talking about these psychotechnologies and ways sort of our, our, our cultures have evolved out of this axial revolution. And one of the things you were saying was that um, whenever we see each other in the street, we'll walk past Kaisley and we'll say things like, like, how are you or how's it going today? And you were saying in the lecture series that this is kind of like a psycho technology for helping us to develop a third person perspective and take yes, perspective yes. of another person. Yeah, which yeah,
1: that, right. That yeah right I'm see I'm seeing the connection now I, I was trying to see what was the connection was to the axial age but you were making connection to psychotechnology. yeah exactly we we have all these practices we've have all these standardized ways of communicating uh, information or storing information or transmitting information uh, that are yeah that are designed to again fit our cognition fit our behavior and, and, and um, achieve certain very prosaic goals like how are you which is basically right a, a way of opening ourselves up to there's other people there's other perspectives we don't want too much of an answer from other people but we want to right constantly remind ourselves as you said that there's a third person perspective uh, and we want to give the person the chance to uh you know have our attention for a little bit and so yeah we and that's very that that's a practice that we do that sort of takes the place of the way you know primates groom each other and, and pick lice off of each other that's sort of us doing that socially. Yeah, the, the psychotechnologies are, are, are pervasive uh, and we don't notice them because the tools have, we, we have become so internalized to us that they become part of us, but, but that's that was the point. So to return to the, what's happening in the actual age, you've got people internalizing alphabetic literacy. Imagine if I took alphabetic literacy away from you, you couldn't do most of the things you do. Imagine if I took numeracy away from you. Imagine if I took abstract symbolic thought away from you, right? See how much they empower your cognition and how much they connect you to other people's cognition. Like, how are you? They connect us in powerful ways. Mm. Now, these, these psychotechnologies are originally created for, like I said, for very prosaic reasons, but they really empower people and they really connect them and they're deeply internalized. And so people start applying as you would expect them to. These psychotechnologies more broadly, they start to apply them to their own minds, to their own cognition, because notice how much, how much, just think about the fact that you can write your thoughts down, how much more self-aware you become of that, mm. right? The fact that you can calculate and follow rules makes you aware of many times where your thinking isn't being rigorous, isn't following rules, right? So you get this massive increase in self-awareness, a very critical kind, which Bella calls second order thinking. And what that means is people become very self-critical, very self-aware. And they start to attribute a lot of the suffering. They used to think the suffering in the world was just a natural part of the world, like lightning and thunder. And the gods were just another natural force. The gods aren't moral agents in the Bronze Age. They're just they're, they're kind of jerks. They just do whatever they want. They're they're just natural forces of, violent, of chaos and some are order, right, and all that. But then people start to realize, oh, wait, how I'm thinking is... Cause of a lot of the suffering, a lot of the violence. The way the mind makes meaning really shapes reality. And so, what people start to do is they start to see the world around them as a world that's a world of illusion or deception or decadence or suffering. But they also become aware that they can get better, they can self transcend. And so, they mythologically project a world above or beyond in time, this world. This upper world, right, and so that's the real world, and that's the world where we are free. We 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 are free from all this self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, and we we come into a fullness of being, and we see reality as it is, and we are seen as we truly are, and we are connected to others. It's heaven. It's paradise. It's 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 the promised land. It it it, 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 it it's the pearl pearl of immortality. But you get, and so all, many of the world's religions are born at this time. Because they bring, this, they bring this mythos of the two worlds and the, and the wisdom that will liberate us from this decadent world and bring us to the true world. And so this is sown into our way of thinking, our way of being, our way of understanding. And we have all these world religions that created all these ecologies of practices for helping us ameliorate the self-deception and afford the self-transcendence. But they were, in, they were woven into this two worlds mythology. And then what happens is you get a series of things that happen in the late middle ages. So you get the Renaissance, you get the scientific revolution, the Protestant reformation, and basically we start a process. And I go into this in great detail, but I'm doing it very quickly in which that two worlds mythology is completely undermined. It's Mm. completely undermined. Um, And so we no longer have a worldview mythos that gives us language that we find acceptable, relevant to us because that, that way of thinking, that way and that language was bound to a two worlds mythology that is really, really undermined. Um, and that's why there's a lot of battles right now between people who are naturalists and supernaturalists. These are sort of the vanguard battles of people trying to but no, there are two worlds, there are two worlds and you know and then there's uh, there's just a tremendous success of science and secularism and also the tremendous errors of science and sec- secularism but i'll get into that maybe later the point is to try and summarize it is we increasingly have a scientific worldview that doesn't have the two worlds and it's even worse than that we don't fit into the scientific world world, world view. we haven't science gives us this wonderful explanation of a lot of things but you know what it doesn't do it doesn't generate an explanation of us how we make the meaning and how we actually do science we don't have an explanation of that we don't have a good explanation of how we make meaning how we realize truth how we make meaning in life how theoretical meaning and meaning we don't fit into that scientific Mm. worldview right and and spirituality doesn't fit into that scientific worldview because the spirituality has this two worlds otherworldly mythology attached to it that doesn't fit and so people are and so we vacillate we vacillate between sort of a decadent romanticism in which we say no the two there really is magic there really is a supernatural and this and scientific despair no it's all just atoms in the void nihilism and there's no meaning and the spirituality stuff is all just bullshit and so we vacillate between those two narratives and both of them cut us and undermine us and we suffer so that's sort of the gist of it
0: well and the, you, one of the things you were saying in the series is that our grammar reflects this two words mythology um but we're living with with now we've we've got a myth mythos now that is completely um divorced from that and that gets us into that's a cause of suffering as well is that fair to say
1: yes i mean i think so when we say grammar i mean your cultural cognitive grammar what i mean is the, this conceptual vocabulary, this theoretical grammar for how we make sense of things and how it's woven. And your example of how are you, just How that's, that's, a, that's a very superficial example of like a grammar that's woven into how we interact, how we think about things, how we experience ourselves, how we experience the world. Uh, but what we've had, right, what we have is, I don't even know if I would call it a mythos now. It, it's, made, it's more like amythia. It's a lack of mythos. Uh, because what i think a mythos should do is it should ground your ecologies of practices that are designed for overcoming self-deception affording meaning in life your your ecology of practices sorry i forgot to turn my phone off uh your ecology of practices that's designed basically to cultivate wisdom it should home that right It, it should say these are why these practices make sense given our best understanding of reality and we don't have that right now i think we have the re- so the positive news is i think we're getting to a place where we could make that now we really and that's the project i'm engaged in but i think in general uh the scientific worldview and i'm a scientist so i believe in the scientific worldview i want to make that very clear right <laughs> I'm i'm not like science is the source of all evil that's not the case is that We got into a cultural cognitive grammar where we thought we could, allow me a bit of a slogan, we could cultivate wisdom by accumulating knowledge. And that didn't work. And what's happened is even the accumulation of knowledge has now degenerated into just the amassing of information and the hope that, you know, just having more and more information somehow will give us the missing meaning will give us the way to cultivate wisdom. And so that's what I mean when I think it's more like a myth, a, we're in amythia. There was a book actually written entitled, I can't remember the author's name. So we we have this powerful way of gaining knowledge um, and it's under threat because of the rise of bullshit, the ways in which right we are just awash in um information that hasn't been properly processed to be knowledge and we have connections that are m- maladaptive malfunctioning connections that just exacerbate our self-deceptive behavior and really cut us off from each other look at how cut off we are from each other the the media is actually cutting us off from each other such that we're taking to the streets and yelling at each other and uh, and it's becoming violent and like um And as that's been happening, that knowledge project has suppressed, um, often denigrated, neglected, or ignored, the wisdom project. And we used to have sort of a deal in our culture. You know, we'd have the science over here, and then people would do religion over here. uh, And that was the meaning and wisdom thing. And then here's the science, the knowledge thing, the knowledge and technology thing. And we were just going to go along, and that was sort of the you know, the post-World War II model. And the thing is, it's just, that is just complete. Well, you, I don't have to even argue this. That's completely collapsing. Um, and um, so I think we're in a place where we're, we're suffering a wisdom famine, a meaning crisis. Um, and that's, that's also just reverberating backwards. And it's even starting to undermine the knowledge project, the scientific project in powerful ways. Sorry, that sounds like a mess, but um, that sounds like really dark news. But like I said, I think what's happening, that the, the, the science that's the science of how we make meaning in us, that's cognitive science. Um, and that's, that's going through this major, almost like a revolution right now, in which we could do what I said, and it's already happening. We could really start to understand the meaning making process in such a way that we could rigorously and even scientifically explain and valorize and legitimate the ecologies of practices for cultivating meaning and flourishing and wisdom that's what's that's the very very positive news that i'm trying to bring people right now not just me lots of people are trying to bring it out um so it, we're in sort of very dire circumstances but we all we there there is good reason and evidence to be hopeful of a possible response
0: okay cool um all right sorry that was very long but no no it makes sense um so now i want to talk a bit about one of my favorite lectures from the series was the one on plato um yeah yes some, yes some of the some of the ideas there um particularly you know his model of the psych being divided into three three kind yeah. of key, key elements and also the cave metaphor and Neoplatonism and why that's why that's an important thing to to be aware of in in modern life. Okay, well, you asked questions that are, are, they're good, and they're huge. Um,
1: So I would, I would initially recommend people to the work of Arthur versus Lewis, uh, because he has a whole series of books. Um, um, Two that come to mind are uh, perennial philosophy, which is not the Aldous Huxley idea. Uh, and uh, Platonic mysticism, the Gnostic state. Uh, But what First Lewis basically argues is the Platonic, Neoplatonic tradition is basically the spiritual grammar of the West. Now, I know many people are going to, ah, right, they're going to know Christianity. Uh, and Give me a chance. What you have to understand is very early on, you can see it even in St. Paul when he's uh, at the Areopagus, He's quoting Stoic philosophy, which got absorbed into Neoplatonism. You see it in other people like Justin Martyr, and you see it overwhelmingly in Augustine and Dionysus. The point I'm trying to make is that Christianity basically absorbed Neoplatonism. And and in fact, it's even even, that, that is undeniable um, for like if you look at Eastern Orthodox Christianity, it's so Neoplatonic, they like through and through and through and through read the works of Maximus, and right? Okay, so. And then the same thing, like, uh, if you look at, like, within Islam, and you, you look at the Sufi tradition, this, they even talk about Plotinus, the great Neoplatonist, and, and, and it's so rich with Neoplatonism. Same thing with a lot of Jewish mystical traditions, like the Kabbalah and things like that. So I'm not dismissing them. I'm saying that what, they have a shared ancestor that they absorbed into their family uh, uh, practices. Right, and that's Neoplatonism, and Neoplatonism also carried on until about 600 uh, C.E. just on its own as a pagan practice. And there's also deep connections between other underground currents, like between Gnosticism and neoplatonism and hermeticism. And I'm not saying these are all great systems. I'm just saying that w- w- the degree to which it was forced underground, it didn't die. It just proliferated underground. And a lot of occult practices, you can see them as sort of degenerate versions of neoplatonism. So I think Versailles is, you is know, absolutely right about, uh, about this. So, so, so I'm not saying we can go back to Platonism or even Neoplatonism, because Neoplatonism takes is still within that two worlds mythology. But what I'm saying is, we have to somehow recover. I like this word, uh, Kerry uses it in his book on Augustine, it's inventio, it's the Latin word inventio. And inventio means both to discover and to make. So I've coined this new word, reinventio. We have to reinventio Neoplatonism so it is can fit in with our scientific worldview but that's not a that's not a hard thing to do like it because a lot of the people that were deeply influential like um in the 20th century and like john spencer and other people have argued this in this in you know in, in that in, in you know the invention of uh, the most recent version of the scientific world people like that are associated with relativity and quantum mechanics and all that many of these guys were literally Neoplatonists and deeply influenced by it. There's a book called The Eternal Law where John Spencer just does that history and says, look, Neoplatonism didn't go away. And these people, that, that, that whole scientific revolution that in the 20th century was deeply in, inspired and influenced by a Neoplatonic vision. So there's a reason for all of that. Okay, so what's the, what's, what, what is that and how can we recover it? So Plato had this really powerful idea And we keep rediscovering it. Freud rediscovers it. And and then when we're rediscovering it in cognitive psychology, that the psyche is divided into sort of three different systems. That's not even quite the right word, but these are ways in which the world is apprehended, comprehended, and 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 then thereby a center of motivation. So there's a part of us, um, well, we should do what both Freud and Plato did. And also what modern thinkers like Stanovich do, we can see how the, the parts of the psyche by seeing the psyche in conflict. You can sort of see the parts when, you, when we're in, in internal conflict. By the way, internal conflict is really important because a lot of our self-deceptive behavior is actually driven by internal conflict. And that was actually Plato's great insight. He was trying to understand why do people fall into self-deception? It's because they have these internal conflicts. So you know, I'll, give, I'll give one of my favorite examples of this right? Um, which is, you know, I want to lose some weight. And so, yeah, I'm going to lose some weight. And, then, you know, think about that. That's a, that's a long-term goal. That's very abstract, right? Um, and so I come home and there's a chocolate cake on the counter. Uh, whoa, man, do I want that chocolate cake, right? There's a part of me that just says, it doesn't care about something abstract and long-term like health. It sees you know this, right? The, the 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 chocolate, and it can smell the cake. It can almost taste, and uh, the chocolate. Uh, eat it now! Eat it now! Eat it now! And you know, and that has an adaptive function, uh, and it's very compelling. Now, there's another part of me. There's the part that's going, no, don't eat it because you want health. But that part seems really weak, right? It seems like, yeah that's off there in the distance, it, you know, this is why we procrastinate, yeah, I should write my essay, but that's not for two weeks, right, yeah. and, right. and so, and again, these, these are all adaptive machines, and that's the thing that cognitive science can show us, because, well, why do we behave this way, these are all very adaptive things, um, but there's a third part, so Plato said, imagine that that the part that wants the cake, it's like in your stomach or your genitalia, because that's where those really powerful urges, those short-term powerful urges, pleasure and pain, right? And then there's this thing that's like, it's in your head, right? And it's whispering, yes, but health, long-term health, right? And it's like, well, no, it, it it's not motivated by pleasure and pain is mattered by truth and falsity. I know that it's true, but knowing that it's true doesn't seem strong enough. And then Plato said, we're lucky, we have a third part of us and it's like in our chest, right? And this is, this is the fact that we're social cultural beings, that in addition to having a biology, we are in We've been talking about that all, all already today. And so this isn't pain and pleasure, but it's also not truth and falsity. It's honor and belonging or rejection and shame, right? And we really want, you're nodding when I'm talking, right? Because we want to connect, we want to belong, we want to fit, to, because one of our greatest adaptations is the fact that we can cooperate and work together. That is our greatest adaptation. And so he, he compared the, the thing in your head to like a man. Uh, I know that's somewhat sexist, but compared to the people of his time, Plato is like really, really um, challenging. Sexist attitudes, because he thought women could also rule, be philosophers, be in the army, which was rarely, very countercultural. But anyways, the thing in your head's like a man. The thing in your chest is like a, is like a like a lion, because they're social animals, and we associate them with pride. That's why we even call it a pride of lions, right, and stuff like that. At least I think so. And then the thing in your stomach is like a monster, right? Mm. So he says, now what do we do when we want to change? Now we get into self-deception because the monster make things makes things really salient to us, mm. but disconnects us from caring about whether or not they're true or not. And may even cause us to not pay proper attention to other people. Right. And that's the root of self-deception. Self-deception is when these adaptive machineries are out of sync such that we find stuff salient in a way that's not tracking our responsibilities to other people or our responsibility to the truth. In fact, that's Frankfurt's, that's kind of Frankfurt's definition of bullshit. The liar tells you something that's false, and that's how they try to change your behavior. But the bullshit artist tries to get the monster running independent of the lion and the man, and that's how they manipulate you. That's self decep- That's deception. And you can bullshit yourself. You can't really lie to yourself. That doesn't make any sense. But you can bullshit yourself. You can... Just let your, yes, my attention goes to the chocolate cake and that makes it even more salient. And then my attention keeps coming back to the chocolate cake and that makes it more salient until I can't see anything but the chocolate cake and then I'm eating it before I even realize it. So that we bullshit ourselves. And then Plato said, okay, we we bullshit ourselves and we self-deceive and we don't properly treat others and we don't properly care for the truth. How do we get, because these things are out of alignment. How do we get them into alignment? and he said oh well the man can at least learn the truth right but what can the man do well the man can actually train the lion and then the lion is the man and the lion can tame the monster and it's this wonderful metaphor and you think well what does plato mean well and and he's right if you want to change your habit join a group if you want to change a habit, join AA, join Weight Watchers. If you want to do meditation, stick with a group for at least a year and then you'll be able to meditate on your own. If you only if you start meditating on your own, 90% of the time you'll have stopped meditating within five weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So Plato's bang on right about that. So how do we get the man to teach the lion? Well, what we do is we try to set up a group practice in which we're honoring each other in a shared commitment to the truth. Right? Mm-hmm. That way the lion. Is getting us to pay attention to what the man is saying. You and I work together, right? And that's his—that's Plato's practice of dialectic. That's what I'm trying to, right? When I'm trying to you know, re- re- revitalize for today, right now, how can we enter into dia logos so that together we are leaving bullshit and coming insights together, sharing together, creating together insights that we can't get on our own so that we can afford each other's transformation, so that we can more and more listen to the reality and the truth of things. That's the process of dialectic. And then what Plato says, if you're doing the practice of dialectic and it's getting you into dialogos, what happens is all three of these get into a proper alignment. So they're all living as much as they can without harming the other two. They get into a mutual optimal existence. And he said, That is, and we have a meta drive, more than, more like in addition to whatever we desire, we desire the fulfillment of our desires to bring us inner peace, peace of mind, this fullness of being, right? We want that. But Plato said, we also have another desire, a meta drive. We want that whatever satisfies our desires to be real. That's why you can ask people, I do this in a classroom. I say, how many of you are in really good romantic relationships? Yes you know, those people. Of those people, how many of you would want to know that your partner was cheating on you, even if it meant the destruction of the relationship? Almost everybody puts their hand up again. They'll destroy this thing because it's not real, right? Mm -hmm. It's not real. And so Plato says, well, notice what happens. As you do the process that brings you inner peace, it reduces the inner conflict, it reduces the bullshitting, and therefore... And that, that in and of itself is just inherently valuable, but it also reduces our self-deception. It reduces our self-deception, and it gets us to care about the truth and care about our responsibility to other people more appropriately, more in, more proportionately. And so what do we do? We connect to the world better. We start to see the real patterns better in the world, and that's satisfying, That really satisfies us. We really want that. We want to be in touch with things, listen to the language. But as we see those real patterns and connect to other people, that allows us to reflect better on ourselves, right? And see our own psyches better and see the real patterns in in us. And that helps us even better reduce the self-deception. And then as we reduce the self-deception, we get more connected to reality. And you see what happens? It loops. It loops. And the two things mutually afford each other. So these two meta desires of inner peace and contact with what's real. And that means real contact with the reality of other people, right? They're being mutually satisfied in a mutually accelerating manner. And when you get that, by the way, think about when you're falling in love, you open up, you sort of get a little bit of that alignment in yourself and you open up to another person and that helps them align. And then they open up to you, right? And you see them a little more clearly and they help you see yourself a little more clearly. And then you open up to them and they open up to you and you do this reciprocal opening and you fall in love. And what Plato is basically saying is, if you do this right, you can fall in love with reality. And that means also other people as, as real persons. And that is a process he calls anagogic. This is the process. And he tells the story of people coming out of a cave right? And that's the story of people going through this, op- it's, a myth- it's a mythological, metaphorical way of describing people going through this reciprocal opening process and falling in love with, with, simultaneously and not in an egocentric way, with the depths of their psyche and the depths of reality in a mutually affording way. And Plato says, Plato's argument is, that's, that's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the wisest, most meaningful possible life available to people now he tells this two world story people are trapped in a cave underground and they have to go up to an other world uh, the real world where the sun is shining and there's light and life and it's a beautiful story and it's all and it's part of the two worlds mythology and you know and and i and Plato's beautiful and i love it uh plato has a profound influence on me but we don't need this story anymore Because we have the cognitive science, and I'm even doing it with you now, that says, yes, we understand how and why all of this is working. And so we don't have to. We can talk about anagogy, We can talk about reciprocal opening. We can talk about the alignment of the psyche. We can talk about picking up on real patterns. We can talk about overcoming self-deception. We can talk about flourishing. We can talk about all of that using the language of cognitive science. And so we don't have to use a language of trapped here and they're up a world up there we don't we don't have to use that language anymore it's beautiful language we i'm not saying throw away the art keep the art keep the art don't do that don't throw it away but what i'm saying is we have another way of thinking about it that can sew that spiritual
0: quest right back into the scientific worldview very cool, very cool. Well, John, there's about a million things I could ask you. Um, we've only got ten <laughs> minutes left, so I'm trying to figure out what's what would be best to ask. Um, I think one of the concepts I found really interesting as well was this idea of existential inertia and the work of L.A. Paul. I find yeah. that very interesting, and also serious play too. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that and why that's important?
1: Well, and that's that's actually that's actually integral to this um, this. Uh, the journey that we talked about the anagoga right um the 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 mythological coming out of the cave right this and the point is in you have to read the whole story you ascend out of the cave you see the sun and then you return back into the cave to try and set the people free that are still there it's not just about having a wonderful experience it's about transforming yourselves and other people um so that transformation is really key and so and L.A. Paul, Laurie, I know her, I've met her, um, talked to her. Uh, I went down to Yale and uh, lectured in one of her classes. Uh, she invited me. Brilliant thinker. She literally wrote the book on transformative experience. It's entitled Transformative Experience. And she, she, she does what philosophers do really well, what, what the, why we need them. They, she takes something that we're aware of, and she reveals what's problematic about it. And we, we, why do you do that? Because there's a lot of stuff that we don't understand and we're bullshitting ourselves if we're attached to something. I want transformation. Well, what is it? Well, I don't know. Well, that's bullshit. Like you're bullshitting yourself. Something is salient to you, but you don't really understand it. And so she, she makes the process of transformation very problematic in order to bring out a deeper understanding of what's involved in it. And she does this by doing what philosophers do, often do. She tells a thought experiment. Right, they point. What is the thought experiment is sort of crafted to make an obvious point in a non-controversial situation, and then you are supposed to transfer it back to real life. So let me do it with you, right? And she says, "So this happens to you. Your friends come to you, and they give you incontrovertible evidence and just absolutely rigorous argument that they can turn you into a vampire. Should you do it?" And she says, "Well, notice there's a problem here you face, which is you may have all kinds of propositions because that's what they're giving about a vampire. Um, so you you have, you you you, know, you you can have all kinds of beliefs, but that's really really inadequate for making your decision because you're lacking a, a couple of important kinds of knowledge, right? So you you don't know what it's like what it's going to be like to be a vampire." Now, notice how that's different from having all these propositions about a vampire that you believe. Now, what does she mean? Well, this is what I call perspectival knowing, and I've done this with Lori, and she sort of says, yeah, that's that's what I mean. So, you know what it's like to be you right here, right now. You're in a particular state of mind, and you have a particular perspective. This is how things feel to you, how they look to you, how they appear to you, right? How they're salient to you, and it's constantly shifting, and 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 and, and that's that's enmeshed with the state of mind you're in. You'd have a different perspective if you were drunk, for example, or if you were really tired, or if you were in psychological distress, different things would stand out to you as important and your sense of self and identity would be altered, right? Uh, So that's your perspectival knowing. It's knowing what it is like to be you here now, right? From the inside, to have a perspective. You don't know what it's like to be a vampire. You don't have that perspectival knowing, right? Because you have to be a vampire. And that takes us to the second part. And this is what I call participatory knowing. This is knowing by the kind of identity you assume and the kind of identities you assign to things in the world. So for example, right now I'm sort of a scientist and you're an interviewer, right? Obviously you're much more than that. And hopefully you acknowledge I'm much more than a scientist, right? But that's the role, right? That's the role. We're shaping, we're shaping each other to each other so that these roles fit together and there's affordances for communication between us. That's our participatory knowing. And that's that has to do with what we're identifying with, what we're deeply valuing, right, and how we're engaging in all of that. And, and you don't have participatory knowing of, of, of being a vampire because you've never had the identity of a vampire. You don't know what... So... You can't use your current identity and values to judge the identity and values of the vampire because you don't know those and you don't, you aren't that identity and you don't identify with those values. So she says, you're completely ignorant. You don't know what the probabilities are gonna be. You don't know what the values are gonna be. So you can't, and you can't infer your way through it. There's no, there, there's no inference, right? There, because you're ignorant of you know, the perspectival and the participatory knowing. You're completely ignorant. And the thing is, it's symmetrical ignorance. If I don't do it, I don't know what I'm missing. And if I do do it, if I decide to do it, I don't know what I'm gonna lose. So how do you do it? Right, how do you do it? You can't reason your way through it. You can't infer your way through it. And yet we do this all the time. And that's L.A. Paul, that's Lori's point. Because you do it when you decide to have a kid. You don't know what, you don't know the identity of being a parent. Being a child, does not give you any idea, idea, that's even the wrong word, doesn't give you any sense of what it is to be a parent. And if you think, you know, you don't realize how egocentric your perspective is until you have a child, because you can't be the center. Your whole salience landscape has to shift and the ch- it has to be about the child more than it's about you. You don't know what it's like going to be like. You don't know what you're missing if you never have a child, but you don't know before having a child what you're going to lose. You can talk to people like me and I can give you all kinds of propositions because I've had kids, but you don't know. You're going to be a different person and you're going to, you're going to have different perspectival and different participatory knowing. And the problem is once you've done it, like, Whoa, 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 you can't go back. Right. Going to enter into a romantic relationship. You're going to be a different person. You're going to have a different perspective you, your perspective on participatory knowing are going to be different and you won't you won't know that until after you're in the relationship and the relationship has changed you and you see the world differently and you are in that world differently and you say well i can get out of the romantic relationship yeah you can but man that's really painful right yeah right so what do we do and that's just like deciding to move to a new culture taking up a new career, entering university in the hopes of going, becoming a different person at the other end. All of these are examples of those kinds of decisions. So what do we do? And again, I've actually proposed this to Lori in person. Well, let's take the example of deciding whether or not you want to have a kid. You know what people do? What I've seen a lot of people do is they'll get a dog and they'll treat the dog, they'll name the dog, and the pictures taking with the dog, and they, they treat the dog like a child. But it's not a child, right? This is what I call serious play. What you do is you put yourself in a place where you're pretending, not in the sense of lying, but the way a child can pretend a, sick, a stick is a sword. Or that when they're jumping off a, a couple of stairs, they're flying through the air like Superman. We, and why do children play? They play because they, it gives them a taste of what another perspective is that they don't yet have and what, a, a, what an identity is that they don't yet have. This is what Agnes Collard calls aspiration. It allows them to aspire to a new way of seeing and a new way of being. That's why children play. It's, it's a, it, that's how we develop, but we play as adults. We do serious, and children's play is serious play, by the way. We've confused the fact that things are pleasurable with them being trivial, right? So adults, they get a dog. So what they do is they enter this, they enter this space that's, they haven't left the world of uh, not having kids, and they haven't fully entered the world of having parents. They're in this liminal zone where they're seriously playing so they can taste what it would be like to have a child, but if it's not working, they can pull back and say, and they just have a dog and they could even, you know, maybe give the dog away. And that might hurt them for a day or two emotionally, but then it's gone and nobody will say what, but like, but if you tried to do that with your kid, oh my gosh, right? So they, right, they do serious play or they, right? And I've heard people actually give this advice, a serious romantic relationship. Well, go on a, this is pre-COVID, of course, go on a trip with a person. Go on a trip for a couple of weeks, live with him for two weeks. But because it's a trip, it's out there and it's it's play, right? It's serious play, it's not for real because you're not actually bound into your life, but you're actually living together, but you're not right. And it's all this, and then and then so you seriously play and you get a taste of what it would be like to live with this person, and you see if you're compatible, right? And etc. We do serious play. And here's something I want to say, and it is not meant to be an insult. I take seriously what the children are doing. I teach developmental psychology. Religion was serious play. Religion is, and again, I mean this as a compliment. You go into this building, it's a special place for play. It's a church perhaps, or a mosque, right? And we go in there and we pretend a lot of things. Again, not in the sense of lying or self-deception, but in the sense of the child trying to, what would it be like to be Jesus? And we seriously play. How, what would it be like to be Jesus? What would it be like to be one of his disciples? How would we see things? What kind of identity would we have? How would we do it individually? How would we do it together? And we play with that. And we taste it. And if and if it and if it catches, we start to take, take it out of the play zone back into our lives. And that's how we engage in transformative experience, and that's what we want our religions ultimately to do for us. We think that religions are ultimately about the beliefs. That's like the person who thinking the beliefs about a vampire are sufficient for being a vampire. The beliefs are only there, I would argue, and this will get me into trouble, they're only there to to help afford the serious play, but unless you're doing the serious play, you're not going to actually find the transformation now the thing that you have to ask yourself if you ask the nuns n-o-n-e-s why don't they belong to an established religion they don't say because i think everything they say is false they could say that but they don't say that they say they find it and this is the key they find it irrelevant they can't play that it's like you know you're a kid right and you used to play with toys like I remember, when my younger son was younger, he had all these figurines from the the Justice League. And here's Martian Manhunter. Here's Superman. Here's Batman. And he would play, and he'd ask me to play with him, and I would sort of play with him. And there was a difference between how he was playing with him and and I, like I can't play with them. I really wanted to, but I even remember that moment as a kid where I got out all my toys, and I, and I you know, as was you know 10 or 11, and I'm getting out all my toys, and I'm putting them on the table, and I was like, I start to play with them, and it's just, it doesn't catch it just doesn't catch. I can't do the serious play anymore. Somehow my development is pa- had passed on. I'm not saying we've outgrown religion. That, that would be really insulting. The point I'm trying to make with my analogy is it's not a case of disbelief. It's a case that for some reason, right? Those places, we, people can't seriously play in them anymore. They can't find the transformation they're seeking. I think it has to do with the historical reasons we've been talking about. I think that's why churches are no longer the serious play
0: zones they used to be for many, many people. Cool. Well, John, I think that's all we've got time for, but I just want to say a huge thank you for the work that you're doing and for taking some time today to share some of your knowledge with that I share some of your knowledge with us. I really, really appreciate it. Um, where can people um, follow up on this conversation? Where can they find you online? Where would you recommend people to go? Well, I mean, I recommend people check out
1: the lecture series we've been talking about, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. That's on YouTube. And then I recommend they take they uh, They take a look at Voices with Raveki, where I'm engaging with other people in the serious play of dialectic into Dialogos that I was talking about, where I'm really trying to explore it, reinventio it, participate in it, exemplify it, share it with other people. And so the Voices with um, video videos come out on that uh, weekly. If you're interested in sort of deeper questions about consciousness, uh, take a look at... uh, Untangling the World knot that I did with my friend and colleague, Greg Enriquez. Um, if you're interested about this, what the self is now, what what, what is the self? Uh, I have a new series that's coming out very shortly called The Elusive I, like the letter I, uh, right? Uh, the nature and function of the self. Uh, and then there's going to be uh, another major series, hopefully coming out. Yeah, I'm hoping if COVID lets up by September of Of this year called After Socrates, uh, The Cultivation of Wisdom Through Authentic Dialogue. Um, uh, There's a book I have out, you mentioned it, you know, the zombie, that's for free, by the way, open book publishers, Zombies in Western Culture, a 21st Century Crisis. And hopefully, the, the anthology on dialectic and dialogos, it's called Inner and Outer Dialogues, that should hopefully be published and available later this year. So, those are things to look for and to look forward to. Um, If people are interested in uh, pursuing some of this uh, more fully. If you really want to start engaging and cultivating an ecology of practices, so during COVID, between sort of April, no, March and December, I ran an online meditation and contemplation course and then I followed that with a cultivation of wisdom course. All of those videos are also that those both of those courses and they overlapped and connect are all available online. Uh, We, we filmed it daily. There's lessons, there's practice, there's Q and a sessions that's all available also on YouTube. If you want
0: to engage in some of these, begin to engage in some of these transformative practices. Fantastic. Well, we'll link to those in the show notes uh, after the episode. So John, thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and I wish you the best of luck going forward.
1: Thank you, Niall. It was really great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.